0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're talking about a psalm, Psalm 133, which will be the last of the Psalms of Ascent that we're looking at, that speaks of unity. It speaks of community, common unity, that we are together uh, in life, living life openly before one another, Living life honestly with one another. And this is the end of this series that we're doing. We've looked at it over the last eight weeks or so. And we have said these are the songs for the sojourn. That this isn't our life. A sojourner is one who is in an alien country for a season. But they know that their citizenship lies somewhere else. That they get all of their information from somewhere else while living in that place. And God has said for us, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship uh, comes in our law and our understanding of how to relate to one another comes from a different source. But yet we've been set here for this season of time. For some reason, God has placed you here on Hilton Head Island in Bluffton in the Lowcountry for this season of life. And what you've got to figure out and what you've got to really press is a couple of things. What's your purpose in it And we've said easily for all Christians, we should be able to say the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That whatever we do, we bring honor and glory for Him. Both the things that we do in public, the things that we do in private, they bring honor and glory. That word glory coming from a heaviness, a weightiness of saying what and how I live, how I speak, how I engage in my life. All of that brings something to the name of God. And hopefully it brings glory to the name of God, honor to the name of God, and we enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose, that we're here. And then we say, okay, with that purpose in mind, how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, the world and culture would tell us one way to do it. But the Scriptures that we have through God's Word, they tell us a different way. And these Psalms of Ascent have been a guide for us, a songbook, as we're on this pilgrimage for the Old Testament Jews and even the New Testament Jews as they came to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, they would have sung these songs. They would have recited them maybe in the evenings around campfire. They would have reminded one another of these things, maybe when they were scared, or maybe when they were tempted by Baal and Asherah and Molech on the high mountains, they would have said, I lift up mine eyes to the mountains whence does my help come? My help comes in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And it doesn't come from Molech and it doesn't come from Baal and it doesn't come from Asherah. It comes from the one who is on the true mountain, Christ, God himself, is where my health comes. And then it said, hey, guys, everybody, we're going in and we're going to go celebrate. We're going to church. How many of you, when you woke up this morning and you looked at your children, if you have children, you said, hey, we get to go to church, there was this roar of applause coming from them. Anybody? A couple of you? Well, most of us not that way. And it wouldn't be great, that was probably the case with some of these parents of little children, as they said, hey, guess what we get to do again this year? We get to load everything up and we get to head to Jerusalem. They're like, yeah, what are we going to do in Jerusalem? We're going to go worship God. We're going to go to the temple. Huh. And then they would have gone back to the song. They would have said, hey, sweetie, it is good and pleasurable to be in the house. of God. I consider it a dream from which I haven't even woken up from to come into the place where God is it is awesome and it is majestic and for some along the way they would have been reminded by the enemy you failed you sin you're not worthy of this king you're a hypocrite and you would have gone for all of my shame is taken by him i carry no more guilt and they would have looked into these songs and maybe this week they would have been getting a little closer i don't know how long it took to get from wherever they were going to Jerusalem, but let's just say it took a couple of weeks of walking. You got the kids, you got the camel, uh, you got the the stuff with you. You got the in laws, you got the outlaws, you got the friends and the neighbors, everybody from your community, and you're heading up. And then all these other people start joining in, and you're coming along, and you're like, "Wait a second, I wanted that campsite," or "Wait a second, uh, I needed to go to the bathroom first. I don't want to wait in line," or "Wait a second, I needed this." And so all of a sudden, you find yourself sort of getting a little cross with one another, and maybe you looked around and you looked and you went. What do they do in coming? I don't like them. Or, man, I got to hang out with these folks in Jerusalem. Thank goodness it's a big town. Well, maybe I won't have to see them. And then somebody would have said, Oh, how good and it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil that flows down the beard even down the beard of Aaron and on to his collars, It is like the dew of Mount Hermon, even the dew of Mount Zion. And oh, there you will find peace forevermore. He would have addressed, and God was saying, hey, I get it, folks. Living life together is tough. Anybody agree with that? You can speak, actually. Living life together is tough, isn't it? Okay, it's, I mean, it's okay. You can speak. Uh, on that. It's tough. And we know that it's difficult to live life together. Statistics show it out all the time. You want to know what the average uh, time of marriage is, span of marriage in the United States is currently? It's 8.8 years. That's how long people can make it in marriage. It's 8.8 years. Now, many of you have gone well beyond that, and we praise God for that. And it's, it's actually, that number is higher within the church. But still, we have a hard time staying together. We have a hard time getting along. We, as Presbyterians, come from a tradition out of Scotland. If you know anything about Scottish people, uh, they don't get along. There's clans and there's clan warfare. And then we started this church, and what would happen out of the Scottish church was it didn't really get along with each other. And so the Presbyterian church has been known for years and centuries to continue to break apart and splinter because they can't get along with one another. I lived in the mountains of North Carolina for a little while, way uh, on that little part of North Carolina that touches down to South Carolina and Georgia. It's in the mountains. There's valleys and there's hollers. And you know what you find in all those little valleys and hollers? You find tons of little bitty churches. You know what those churches are? Those churches are all the people who couldn't get along. They're family churches. There's the McCutcheon clan church that's over there, the little Baptist church. And then there's this little church, the Smith church, and the Jones church that's over there. And there's all these little churches that are right up the road from one another. Because people can't figure out how to get along. You've heard the old joke of the guy who was on a desert island for a number of years and he was rescued. And when they rescued him, they found three huts. They said, what are these three huts? They said, well, the first one is my house where I live. Uh, the second one is my church where I go and worship. And the third one is the church I used to go to. And so that's kind of what we just can't figure out how to get along. Well, God understood that. And so we're coming now to this great psalm to end our series and our time together in the Songs of Ascent. And next week, we're going to look forward Uh, to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at that through the fall, take a break for Christmas time and for Advent, and then pick up again after the first of the year. So I'd encourage you this week, if you would, start to read through the Gospel of Mark. Be refreshed by it. See it in your mind to hear even Peter's voice, because that's who really uh, was the voice behind Mark's Gospel, uh, was Peter writing about his life with Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn a lot about what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ uh, through the eyes of Peter and Mark uh, beginning next week so I encourage you to be a part of that as come each week and start to study that on your own but now let's turn our attention to Psalm of ascent 133 behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word. May he add his blessing. The reading and hearing of it. Behold. That's an important word. It's just one word, but it's an important word uh, within this. And it's a word that's supposed to get your attention. It's a word that David, the writer of the song, King David, Wrote and he said, Hey guys, I want you to listen to this. This is exciting stuff. This is important stuff. This is stuff that's going to be hard for you to understand. And he said, This, behold, it's good, pleasant to live together in unity. He was basically saying, Guys, I know this is a difficult construct. I know that it is something that you have a hard time holding together as we come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. We come from different educational backgrounds. We come uh, from different academic and university backgrounds. We come from different regions of the world and of the country. And we're coming together and he's saying, hey, this is just an amazing thing that I want you to see. Behold, it's good to live together. We are called to live together in community. We're called to live together in relationship with other people so that they know us. They know something more than just our names and what we do for a living. They actually know us and we know something about them. We know them. We know who they are. We know some of their shortcomings and weaknesses. We know their strengths and greatness. But we see it all and we're living together. And David is saying, guys, this is a good thing. Behold how good and pleasant it is. He's making this proclamation and he's coming and saying, guys, we have come through a season of disunity in Israel. David, think about it. It, I believe, as John Calvin would, that he wrote this earlier on in his ministry life. Earlier on when he had ascended to the throne and he was in Jerusalem, probably before his time with Bathsheba even. And he was there and he said, guys, All we have known is discord. All we have known is strife. Ever since I slayed Goliath and we defeated the Philistines, it started right then and there. Because all of a sudden Saul, who was the seated king, wanted to kill David. And he pursued David and there was civil war and there was strife and there was all kinds of factions and there was everything and people lining up behind the different leaders. And finally, after Saul had been killed and and Jonathan, Saul's son, David's best friend, had died, David ascended into the throne. But there was still civil war. And David brought the country together, unified. And he moved the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And there was... Civil peace. And there was religious peace. There was unity once again for God's people. And David was saying, Behold, this is a good thing. This is important. This is a value that we should hold high within our personal lives and especially within the lives of our church. That it's a value that is there. It's something that we need. It is a shalom. It is a flourishing and a peace that we should pursue. So David was saying, behold, listen, this is important. And so I'm saying to you this morning, behold, listen, this is important. You want to know what can tear apart our church quicker than anything else? It's disunity within the body. It is people grabbing sides. It is people lining up on one side or on another side and deciding that certain things and virtues or uh, vices or even things uh, of decisions, those are the important things. And we line up, churches blow apart all the time. As I was preparing for this, I read a sad story of a small church uh, in a rural uh, southern state, and the church was splitting. Now, there are reasons to split a church, theological reasons maybe, uh, in some of those where you have to go. Maybe you're going to birth and start a new church, or you would then divide it and start something new. This one was over something incredibly important. It was the piano bench. Because the new pianist and accompanist needed a new piano bench, and somebody had gifted the previous piano bench to the church, and they and all of their minions uh, were upset that the piano bench that they gave was going to be removed from the church, and so they revolted, and they split the church over a piano bench. If you think that's crazy, some of you know in your own churches, backgrounds of your churches, silly splits, and David was saying, it's good to stay together. It's good to be unified together. And so then he begins to give us some characteristics. So the first point uh, under that introduction is this some characteristics of unity. He says in the first verse, See how good and how pleasant it is to dwell to, when brothers dwell together in unity. He's saying, First characteristic is this it is good. It is a good value for us to have. It is something that we should hold together high. We should have it as one of our, we, the body of Christ, assembled here at Hilton Head Presbyterian Church will work with all diligence to one, remain theologically accurate, to hold God's Word in high esteem, but we will hold together then under it. We will work to forgive one another and to love one another and to stay engaged with one another. That we will work to stay together. It is good. To be unified together under God. He was saying it's a value. It's good for you. It's good for you. Now some of you, you just heard me say that and you went back to your childhood days. And you're sitting in front of your bowl of oatmeal on a cold morning and you're hearing your mother go, honey, eat it. It's good for you. And you're going, hmm. Lisa says there's a McCutcheon face that we give when we don't like something and I don't understand what that is, but if you were to put certain things in front of me and say, Bill, this is good. One time Lisa decided that it would be good to substitute cauliflower for potatoes and to make mashed whipped cauliflower and to substitute that with the meat that we were having for the evening. She said, Bill, this is good for you. And that face came out, it may be good, but I don't want to have any part of it. it. It may be good, but I don't want it. David said, I'm going to take that argument away from you. The unity in the body of Christ is not only good, but how good and how pleasant it is. Oh, how good and how pleasant. It's something that is fragrant. It's something that brings you alive. There are so many things in our lives that are good, but they're not pleasant. I think about our sister and friend, Betsy Crovo, whose cancer has come back. She has a five centimeter tumor in the right side of her brain. She'll be going to Savannah this week to have uh, brain surgery there to remove it. She has a blood clot in her right thigh that they're going to have to deal with. There's cancer possibly on her liver. And they're going to use radiation. and They're going to use chemo to try to combat it. All of those are good things. It's good that they're doing that.
1: But if you were to go and
0: ask Betsy whether it's Pleasant Or if any of you have experienced some of those same treatments, they're not at all. God is saying, unity of the body, living life together, connected to somebody else, not living in isolation, not living by yourself, but actually working through as mature individuals, working through things and staying together and not letting them split you apart is not only a good value to have, it's good for you, it's pleasant. It's something that should bring you happiness and joy. It's something that you should actually enjoy doing. It actually makes you come more alive when you live in community together. Isn't that right? Some of you are going, that's not my experience. And we're going to say, and try to change that experience. But it is not only good for you. Isn't that nice? That God doesn't just invite us to whip to cauliflower. But he says, I'm inviting you into something that's even more pleasant. Some of you may think that's the most pleasant thing in the world, and God bless you. Uh, but for me, it's him saying, you're going to enjoy being in a relationship with other people there will be difficulties but the difficulties will pale in comparison to the good and the wonderful things that come out of it so it says it's good and it's pleasant the third characteristic that we find in this psalm about unity is this that true unity biblical unity christian unity is not only good it's not only pleasant but it comes from above it has a different source Unity that we're talking about, a unity given by Christ, is a unity similar to what I said earlier about peace. It has a different source. It comes from above. It is something that descends upon us, that is poured out on us, is given from us. And the reason for that is this. Simply, on our own, we can't do it. On our own, we cannot forgive. On our own, we cannot get together and stay together because all of our humanness, all of our brokenness, all the effects of the fall will rip us apart. And God knew that and He said, here's the deal. It is like the oil that is poured upon the head of Aaron, who was the high priest. And it flowed down his hair. You have to get into an ancient Near Eastern uh, Jewish mindset. And to see this in all of his robes and all of his ornaments, as he was becoming the high priest and ascended to that position, but then regularly as he was anointed in that way, it says that he flowed down his hair. And it wasn't just a little sprinkle. It was a pouring out, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, pouring out upon him. And it flowed down his hair. It flowed down onto his cheeks. It flowed down uh, onto his beard. And down off of the beard, it would drip onto his clothing and it was a special kind of oil that they used. In Exodus, it spoke of this oil. Uh, this oil had sugar cane in it. Uh, and it had cinnamon. And it was like a perfume. And it was poured out upon him. And it said it's like that. It's like this precious gift of God pouring it out on His people. And it covers them. And that unity which is given from above, uh, that unity which has its source from somewhere else, Is a fragrant aroma to the world around him. Think about what the work of the high priest would have been. Have you really thought about this? Going into the Old Testament, what did the high priest do? In large part, he slaughtered animals. If you've ever been in a slaughterhouse, it doesn't smell good. And right in the midst of all of these smells, right in the midst of all of this stuff and hustle and bustle, was one who smells the beauty, and glory of God in the midst? The anointed one right there in its midst. And he's saying it's like that. And then David said, if that's not a good enough picture for you, picture this. This unity that comes from above is like the dew on Mount Hermon. And most of you, 21st century American uh, people go, Who? What? Who's Hermon? And why does he have a mountain? Uh, named after him. And so what about the dew? But get into the Near East again. Go in there to this arid part of the world and see the tallest mountain in the Lebanese range. And see it lifting up. And all the people knew that they could, especially the, the, cat, the sheep farmers and the goat herders and all, would know that on Hermon, the dew descended from heaven, And it gave moisture to the ground, And there was plenteous growth. And there were streams and there were places to go at Mount Hermon. He said, it's like that. This unity comes from above. It's something that's unique and different, and it is not culturally or geographically driven. It comes from someplace else. This unity, is you can't muster it up on your own. If you're a new, uh, newly married young couple, or you've been married for a while, I hope that many of you uh, are in the Marriage uh, 360 Seminar, because what you're learning in there is marriage is a challenge. Isn't that right? Isn't that the basic uh, thing of the Yasseri's study along with the other leaders there? Marriage is a challenge because what happens in marriage, and I love working with young couples because usually my first conversation with them is to sort of try to talk them out of marriage. So you really want to do this? And I give this kind of illustration. If four or five uh, marriages in America are ending in divorce, here's the deal. Hilton Head Presbyterian Church is going to give you for your gift for marriage, for your honeymoon, we're giving you two round trip tickets to Hawaii. We're gonna fly you right out of Savannah, and we're just gonna give you these tickets. And that's just what we do, because we're that kind of awesome church. And so they look at me like, Are you being serious? And I say, Well, listen, here's the catch though. You're gonna go down to Savannah and there are gonna be ten planes fueled and ready to go to Honolulu. And you get to choose whichever plane you want to get on. That sounds pretty good. I said, here's the catch. Five of those planes are crashing and burning before they get to Honolulu, And we're not sure which five. You still want the tickets. They're like, not so sure. Like then why, if five out of ten marriages are failing, do you think your marriage is failing? It's usually about this quiet. <laughs> They're like, Dang, we thought you liked marriage. I'm like, I love marriage. But here's the problem of marriage. You're taking selfish husband or selfish bride and selfish groom, and you're saying enter into a relationship where you have to die to yourself, die to your passions, hopes, and desires, and put them under the hopes, passions, and desires of your spouse, and do it with great joy. And see the larger picture of this, and this come together, two becoming one. We were told early in our marriage that the picture of two becoming one uh, was this. It was take two rocks, put them in a burlap sack, take a big stick, and beat the stew out of that, that sack, and then you dump out dust. And he said, see, two becoming one. And some of you are going, I'm 50 years in and it still feels like I'm in the sack. And uh, uh, in that way. And so, somebody's How do we stay together? How can we do it differently? It's got to have a different way of approaching it. And so that's what David was saying. It's not only good, not only pleasant, but it comes from above. And then there was something I learned as I was studying this. It comes from above, but it comes for the great and the small. And he says there, this is about Mount Hermon. It's the dew that's out Mount Hermon, but then he says this interesting thing, and it's also the dew that's on Mount, the Mountains of Zion, which were a much smaller range of mountains, much more like hills, big hills. And he said, It's not only for the great, but it's for the small. That God blesses all people. With his unity, all churches can experience this. All of us can experience this. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on our greatness. It's not based on anything about us. It's based on the gift that Christ is giving us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. And so here we have it. He's saying, "Here are these characteristics. It's good. It's pleasant. It has a different source. It comes from above. It is a gift of God to His people." To be unified. And this church, by the way, has been experiencing that unity for so many years as a gift of God. And I'm thankful for it. We celebrate it so much. And then he says it's for all people, for all kinds of people. But then, it's not written in here, but I thought it would be important for another thing to highlight, though. What are some of the enemies of unity? What are some of the enemies of unity? And I picked out just a number of them. There's lots of them. I picked out and I said, you know, pride and selfishness and ambition, they're all bedfellows together. They all uh, rotate around basically the same thing. Basically, it's incredibly difficult to be uh, in unity together with people who are incredibly prideful, ambitious, and selfish. Have you ever hung out with those kind of people? You haven't hung out with them long? Because nothing you say is correct. Everything has to be done their way, Uh, they don't listen to you, or if they do listen to you, they're only listening to you so that they can formulate their response to you and remind you of how right they are and how wrong you are, and that if you would just listen to them, things would have gone much better for you in your life. There's an ego and an egocentristic opinion of those individuals who basically say, I got it. That falls for pastors. There are an incredible number of pastors who are so egotistical, prideful, ambitious, and selfish but they're destroying their churches all over the place. They're ruining lives because they know what it is. They went to seminary. I have a Master's of Divinity. You know what that means? I know how to study the Bible. I used to know Greek. I used to know Hebrew. Now I know how to use the computer programs that remind me of how to do that. I've studied. But you know what I'm learning? I'm learning this. I don't know. I know that there are some of you who've been around a lot longer. There are some of you who know a lot more than I do. And the humble person says, I want to figure this out together. I submit myself to you. I want to brag a little bit about our church. And this isn't just a church PR thing. I came to this church a couple of years ago. My father was a Presbyterian pastor. And dad told me, I think it was 1991, maybe 92. And he said, Billy... As you go into ministry, be reminded of this one thing. Don't ever trust you. What a sad indictment of a man who'd been in ministry 40 years to say, you can't trust those men. Be careful. Guard yourself. I thought he was right for a long time. I've seen over the years how wrong he really was. And As I came here, I want to tell you something about your church. It's not perfect, by the way. If you're a visitor, we're a mess. Because what this assembled in this place is a group of messy people who are trying to deal with an incredibly beautiful God and trying to live life together. So it's not going to be perfectly done.
1: The one thing I am
0: so astounded by is the men who have been around this church and some of the leaders of this church, both uh, those who are in official positions of leadership and those who aren't, the way that they, in humility, have allowed another generation of younger leaders to rise up as God has brought new leaders into the church, as our church has grown, to say to them, this isn't our church. We're not going to hold on to it so staunchly that we're going to destroy it. And so there's all of this incredible movement around. I wish you could come to some of our session meetings and elder meetings and deacons meetings and see that it's not just about business. It's about talking, sharing, and learning about things. We haven't done it perfectly, like I said, but I'm amazed by the humility of these men. A lot of my friends say, good gracious, McCutcheon, you're going to a retirement community. I guess you've got to deal with a bunch of old people who think everything they should be done their way. And I was like, well, don't, don't fool yourself. There's a lot of 20-somethings who think things should be done their way. Um, there, there's a lot of folks who think things should be done their way. And David is saying in other places in the Scripture, one of the greatest ways to destroy unity is to put yourself above everybody else. You may be right. It may not be, and even if you are right, it doesn't mean that's what should happen. There's a great deference that can be given in the gospel in that way, and so he says enemies of unity: selfishness, ambition, and pride. Maybe for you, uh, this idea of unity of coming maybe into a community group or something smaller, uh, a life group. Excuse me, uh, is incredible fear. Fear is a powerful enemy of unity, because what happens in unity, what happens in coming and living life together, is I share something about myself with you. I tell you about who I really am. I tell, again, couples, when, they're getting, when you're dating, dating is all about concealing yourself. You get all dressed up. You get all smelling good. Guys, you work out a little bit. You put on the sauce. You did all the stuff. You go on, and you're looking good. You know what marriage is all about? Revealing. Because all of a sudden, you get married, and you look around, and you're like, wow, really? That's what you look like in the morning. And that should be in marriage. You should know what they look like in the morning. And we go in life, it's dangerous. Because if I share something about myself with you, you know what you can do with that information? You know what you can do with me? You can reject me. You can look at me and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You can look and you can can flinch when I share with you my story. And you will go, really? (laughs) No thanks. And so fear, fear of stepping out. Maybe for some of you, you've been hurt in the past. So you isolate yourself. You move in, and the last thing about an enemy to unity is isolation. Many of you live isolated lives. You live lives that are not connected to anyone else. You may come on Sunday morning, and that's good, but if you think that your life is going to be transformed because you're here for an hour or so on a Sunday morning, you're fooling yourself. Your life will not be transformed in isolation. Your life will be crystallized. It will be hardened, but it will not be transformed. You'll become more like the person you are in isolation instead of becoming more like Christ has called you to be. I am more like Christ because I am in relationship with my wife every day. I am more like Christ because I'm in relationship with my boys. I am more like Christ because I'm in relationship with other people who point me to this beautiful Savior, who also challenge me and go, Bill, really? Really, McCutcheon? That? You're going to hold on to that at this time? Really? And they challenge me, and they pull me out. And most of us have this tendency, when things get difficult, you know what you want to do? I'm out. You hit the ripcord, and you bail out. And for some of you, maybe you're back for the first time today in church, and I hope you'll come back again. I hope you'll keep, keep tipping your toe back into a community that wants to say to you, hey, we want to love you well. In our imperfections, we want to love you well, and be loved well by you. Don't isolate yourself. Press in. Press in. Now the final thing is this. What's the source of this unity? We already said that it comes from above, but but David gives us a little different picture. He says in verse 3, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There. Where is the there? For there. And he points back to Zion. He points back to Mount Zion, to the mountains of Zion. He's pointing back and he's saying, it's there. It's that this place, this place, interestingly enough, this place that at one point was a threshing floor that was used as a sacrifice place to make sacrifice to God and to be made right. This place that was bought, and the temple and the tabernacle was brought there, and then eventually the temple was there, this place where God would come and say, Through the sacrifice of one, you can be made one with me. He's saying there is a place, there is a hope that comes, and it is this, there is a temple that Jesus went to, and Jesus said of the temple, you don't have to have this anymore. Because now I have come, and I am the temple, I am the sacrifice, and it is through me that you have unity with God, and you have unity with one another. That it's through Christ only that we can find this. You realize that what Christ did was He gave us a unity with the Father that can never be broken. Do you understand that and believe that? That because of your belief in the completed work of Jesus Christ, you are united to the Father. And he says, we will be forever one together. Neither death nor life, nor principalities nor powers, nor things above or things below. Nothing is so big that can separate you from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus. That He united you with the Father. He broke through the Father's anger towards all of those who rebelled against Him. All were at enmity against God. But Jesus Christ became sin so that we would become the very righteousness of God. And so we're united with God, never to be separated from Him. But then guess what else happens? Guess who else you're united with? I'm going to give you a little exercise. Look around to your left, right, and behind you real quickly. Really do that. Those people there, these people, a couple of you are still staring at me. You really are stubborn, aren't you? How hard is it just to look around, guys? Come on. on. You're united not only to God the Father, you're united to everybody else in this room who is also united to God the Father. You're bound to them. And so guess what, if you want to flourish in your life, if you want to see great things happen in your life, you see it done in community with other people, with other believers. God said of Adam, it's not good for you to be He brought Adam in through them, community was born. Not just community vertically, but community this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a wonderful German theologian who was martyred by the Nazis just a month or so before the fall of the Third Reich. He lived in community with a bunch of seminary students in Germany. He left the United States where he was safe. He went back to Germany to say, no, I've got to live this out there. And he wrote in his book, and it's a book that I hope that many of you already have called Life Together. I want to encourage you. I'm not a book salesman, but I want to encourage you to buy more books, download them on your, on your tablets, read them. But Life Together is one of the greatest books written in the Christian faith. And Bonhoeffer says within there, he says this, not what a man is in himself as a Christian. His spirituality and piety constitutes the basis of our community. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Hey, here's the deal. Let's just shoot real. Let's just shoot straight. We don't all get along. There are differences that we have in life, and that's okay to have differences, but not enough to pull us apart. Because guess what? What finds what, what penetrates deep is this. Maybe Andrew and I have something between us. Maybe he's done something to me. He's going, man, I hope not. I'm an intern here. This is, you know. And I could hold it against him. And I could break relationships. And our culture would say, you have good reason to break your relationship. With him. Maybe some of you are in a relationship with a spouse who's deeply wounded. You. Maybe even giving you biblical grounds to divorce separate. But Jesus is saying, through his word, and what Bonhoeffer was picking up on is that I can remain engaged in relationship with Andrew because of who he is in Christ and who I am. That I can apply to him the forgiveness that I have received. That I can hold him not to a higher standard than I hold myself, and in humility I can approach him and I can say to him, "I forgive you. I want to be made right with you." Now he could reject me, right? And some of you think that that's what forgiveness is predicated upon as the response of the other person. That is not true. As much as it as far as it depends upon you. Be at peace with one Approach that individual. Offer to them the peace that you have been given in Christ. View them as Christ views them and as he views you. It's a good place to start. View one another with the grace and mercy that has been extended to you in Christ. There's enough to draw us apart. Some of you would go, I don't like these blue chairs or this loud floor or this place or these things or all of these things, and they could pull us apart. Let's do this. The world's watching. And wouldn't it be great to make a statement to the watching world? And it's this. Here's the statement. We're going to stay together no matter what socioeconomic differences we have, no matter what ethnic differences we have, no matter what racial differences we have, no matter what educational differences we have, and no matter if we like uh, Tigers or Gamecocks or Buckeyes or, or Aggies or any of those things, it doesn't matter. Everyone should like the Blue Hose, by the way. And that's the only loss in the state that bothers me. And you'll have to just think about that and figure it out. But it doesn't matter about any of those things. We're going to stay together. We're going to be a beacon. Then, when people come in who've been rejected and lost, maybe they've been the ones who caused discord, we bring them in. We love them and help them into this body. God, thank you. Thank you for how much you love us. You knew and know that we love to break things apart instead of bringing them together. So, would you bring us together under the power of your Spirit? Would you heal the wounds, and would you make us a strong, unified body, even more than we currently are, Father? We praise you, and we thank you, and we give you glory in Christ's name.